Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today, we are interviewing uh, the author, Emily St. John Mandel, and if you know her work and specifically uh, the fifth of her six books, you know why that song is funny. Um, the rest of you, well, let me just say this, because it's all apropos. I'm breaking probably my most fiercely held rule uh, about this show today. My fiercely held rule is never interview anybody who has just ensorcelled you with their art, with their creativity. The artists who mean the most to me, I'm usually the worst at interviewing. I turn into that Chris Farley character from Saturday Night Live. So I'm going to try to avoid this. I have been uh, very, very immersed in the three most recent Emily St. John Mandel books. That would be Station Eleven, The Glass Hotel, and Sea of Tranquility. Uh, on my vacation last week, I listened to the audiobook of The Glass Hotel and then reread The Sea of Tranquility. Well, anyway, there's so much to say about this. I should stop babbling. Emily St. John Mandel, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I guess maybe I do want to begin with the idea of personal connection. So one of the things that I find fascinating about your books is that there's some bleed or overlap from novel to novel. Uh, Miranda is in Station Eleven in one condition, uh, and, and she's in a different situation in the Glass Hotel. There's a bleed from the Glass Hotel that includes, I think, at least three of the characters from the Glass Hotel go into Sea of Tranquility. And it reminds me a little bit of another Canadian novelist from the past, Robertson Davies, who would have characters kind of walk through scenes in books that they weren't necessarily entirely in. Can you talk a little bit about that, about creating that kind of interlocking group of people? Yeah, sure. So, you know, a major reason to bring back characters is that it's fun, honestly. You know, sometimes you'll just have this cast of characters in your head, and it can be really interesting to bring them back in the next book, or, you know, two books later, like whatever makes sense. And maybe just explore a slightly different aspect of their lives. So in Station Eleven, we see Miranda as an artist. You know, she's the author of this graphic novel, the Dr. Eleven uh, comic books or graphic novels. And we get glimpses of her professional life, but that's absolutely not the focus of the book. But then it was kind of interesting to me to kind of flip that around at the Glass Hotel and think, well, what would it be like if we just saw Miranda as a shipping executive? You know, she's something of a cameo appearance in that book. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we just see her as an executive. There's sort of an allusion to her maybe creating something when Leon comes into the atrium at a shipping conference they're both attending. And, it, you know, he thinks he maybe sees her sketching something in a notebook, but he believes in privacy, so he doesn't ask. So, you know, sometimes it's just that, just wanting to bring characters back, see a different aspect of their lives. With Sea of Tranquility, 
I realized very early on that I wanted it to be a time travel novel because that sounded fun. And the context of this book is that I started writing it in March 2020 in New York City. So, you know, fun just felt really important. I, I really wanted a distraction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking through, well, what are the timelines going to be for this time travel novel? I was attracted to the idea of setting something much further back in the past. So that gives you the 1912 sections on Vancouver Island. But then there is a period of time that's kind of fascinating to me, which is the month of February 2020 in New York, where, you know, it's not like we didn't know what was coming. We have three international airports in that city, and obviously the pandemic was pouring in by the hour. But there was a kind of mass failure of imagination where it's like we knew it was coming, but we didn't believe it. And I'm kind of fascinated by that. So I knew I wanted that to be my second timeline in Sea of Tranquility. And I realized, wait a minute, I have these characters who I just used. I just published The Glass Hotel that month. And I realized that Morella, Vincent, and Paul were very plausibly in New York City in 2020. So, you know, they kind of made sense because they were already there. (laughs) But then... But then also just wanting to spend more time with characters I like. Do you know you're going to do this? I have this weird fanboy theory that a character named Daniel McConaughey, who appears briefly in Sea of Tranquility, is being reserved for future use. But do you know that while you're writing book A, that book B or book C might might contain a cameo or a more developed version of a character w- with a walk-on in the, the earlier book? I know. I really don't plan ahead. I have to admit. Yeah, I just, it's more a matter of, you know, any book will have a number of small characters walk through. And yeah, for me, it's really more a matter of I'll be working on another book later and I'll think, wait a minute, that guy, I could bring that guy back. The, uh, the one exception I'd say is there is a very fleeting moment in the Glass Hotel when my Ponzi scheme mastermind character, um, Jonathan Alcatus, goes to prison. And somebody's written the phrase on the wall of his cell, no star burns forever. And I just kind of love the idea that the previous guy in that cell had been a time traveler and was from the future. And that was why he wrote that and why he read sci-fi kind of obsessively. But, you know, I didn't know for sure that I was going to revisit him. It was just kind of an interesting idea for myself to plan that. There's a show that we've been working on for a long time. We do about four shows a week, but we also have at least one show that we don't know how to do. And so Mm -hmm. that sits there and just sort of cooks in the back burner for months and months and sometimes years. And it's a show about something called Dunbar's Number. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's, it's I'm a, not. What it's is a, that? It's a hypothesis by a, uh, an anthropologist or sociologist, Robin Dunbar, who we have already interviewed now. His hypothesis is, and he offers proof of it, that human beings can s- sustain about 150 interpersonal connections. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you look at the size of Neolithic villages and all kinds of other groupings of people, it does appear that he might be right, that it's a rough number, obviously, but but something like that, that, that our interconnections can be vivid and important and significant at that size, but not much bigger. And I thought a little bit about that, listen, so much about not only the interconnectedness of characters from book to book, but that whole idea of how people are interacting. There's there's a lot going on in your books. I mean, obviously, for people who don't know too much about this, Station Eleven begins with a pandemic that wipes out 99% of people, takes us back to a kind of a pre-industrial reality. The Glass Hotel really is a sort of 
a melange of stuff about shipping, but very primarily probably this kind of Madoff Ponzi scheme guy, Jonathan Alcatus, and all the havoc that he wreaks all around him. Sea of Tranquility is about time travel, about the simulation hypothesis. But I think underneath all of that stuff, there's just a lot of stuff about human interconnectedness. I felt so sad at the end of The Glass Hotel that I wasn't going to be with these people anymore. I'd been enjoying my co- their company so much. Maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of that part of it, because uh, I think it can get overlooked with some of the kind of dramatic conventions that you use. I, I love that idea of Dunbar's number. I hadn't heard that before. But I think what I love about it is it implies real value and limitation, doesn't it? Where, you know, you probably don't want to try to have 500 meaningful interpersonal connections. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really like that. That Yeah, that might speak to some extent to that previous question of yours about bringing characters back, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, I already have a connection with this character. Um, can I limit the playing field a little bit? And yeah, and use that connection again. I think this actually touches in kind of an interesting way on the genre question, which mm-hmm. I, I come up against a lot because, you know, I write books with time traveling detectives in them. I feel like even though my books can be categorized as different genres, it all kind of feels like the same project to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Lola Quartet was straight up noir with um, you know, set during the 2008 financial meltdown. No sci-fi elements whatsoever. It's just a mystery. But then, of course, like Sea of Tranquility gets into kind of hard sci-fi a little bit. You know, I've got time travel in there. What links the books for me is my interest in people and in human connections, because I kind of feel like as a reader, I will follow an author anywhere if I care about the characters. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of carry that value into my writing where I think character development might be the most important thing. And like, obviously, the plot has to make sense. And there's, you know, a lot of things have to work out for a book to work. But yeah, I just... I just kind of want you you as a reader to care about the people I'm writing about. And then I feel like the genre doesn't really matter what mattered. You know, that's that, that's the experience I want you to have as a reader. So one evidence that we have at our show, our show is in its 14th year, and we do about mm-hmm. four episodes a week. And one evidence we have that we might be living in a simulation hypothesis uh, is that we've done shows uh, over the years about glass, just glass, mm-hmm. daydreams. Mm-hmm. which would be maybe a counter-life in your novels, the multiverse, simulation hypothesis, dystopia, time travel, supply chains. We did a supply chain show, but we also, years ago, did a show with Rose George, whose work you probably knew, know she wrote 90% oh, of I everything. I love her book, yeah. yeah. Uh, about yeah. shipping containers. We did a show about that. But what really struck me was there was a day in about 2010 where we were talking to somebody who's a little bit of a guru to us. Her name is Lara, and she works a lot in advanced work in sort of neuropsychology and you mm-hmm. know consciousness and stuff like that. And she will often throw out like 20 ideas to us. And we'd sat there and gone through 19 ideas, and we were getting kind of tired. And then she suddenly said, of course, there's also the question of, is this really reality? And we all kind of lurched forward. You were like, our, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what yeah. so we lurched forward. And she told us about Nick Bostrom's simulation hypothesis. For, mm-hmm. for people who don't know, just you should be the one who explains what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. The simulation hypothesis is exactly what it sounds like. It's this idea that possibly all of reality is a simulation. And what I love about it, by the way, is that you can find very smart people to very convincingly argue either side. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that kind of gets overlooked... And we, we did the show. We tried to get Nick Bostrom. He's the philosopher who created mm-hmm. the hypothesis at first. 
on the show. We weren't able to. But it seems to me that people get so swept up uh, in that whole question. You know, is this some kind of elaborate holodeck? Uh, is it being programmed by somebody else? Are our consciousnesses artificial? It seemed to me that Boston was inter- interested in a question that you're interested in, which is not all of that, but given that that were true, would it affect how we treat one another? In other words, if I just thought you were ones and zeros, would I just kill you and take all your stuff? Would I feel free to hurt you emotionally? Or would it not materially alter our behavior because we're already kind of priced in it at our existing level of consciousness? So why would we? Maybe you can speak to that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That was something I thought about a lot when I was writing this book, which is, you know, A, what is a simulation, which I can get into because Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting rabbit hole. But B, if this is a simulation, does it matter? And I kind of feel like it doesn't. I mean... You know, the argument for like not killing me and taking all my stuff is we know that human beings feel pain. And that in and of itself is an argument for kindness. With that context behind everything, it doesn't actually matter whether we're ones and zeros or not. Was kind of my feeling on it. You know, I, I think that if this is a simulation, our lives still matter. And I think it does still matter how we treat each other. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's at bottom, it feels like what real choice would there be? I don't know if this is exactly apt, but I go back to the joke that's at the end of Annie Hall where the the joke about a guy who says, you know, doctor, I got a problem. My my mother-in-law thinks she's a chicken. And he says, well, why don't you get her to a psychiatrist? And he said, well, because we need the eggs. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And there's a way in which we need the eggs, right? We're already in the reality where our mother-in-law is a chicken. And so to suddenly think, oh, but I'm going to act really, really differently than I ever have before, or I'm going to act against my instincts, or I'm going to you know, forsake basic principles that have guided me just because I don't think it's real anymore. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. No, it doesn't. I mean, this this is our reality, whether it's taking place in a computer or not. Although I think also it does increasingly feel, for example, I don't know, I just became aware of this this morning, but over the weekend, I was aware of this and you might have been on social media. There were a lot of pictures of the Pope in this big white mm-hmm. puffy coat. And I found out this morning that was an AI generated falsehood. In other words, he doesn't have that coat. He wasn't wearing that coat. (laughs) You know, I I thought of jokes about that. I mean, I just completely ate it up as real. Mm -hmm. Um, And that I think our ability to distinguish, particularly as these technologies come online even more ferociously, our confidence that we know what reality is seems a little shaky. Absolutely. It's a little bit terrifying as a parent, candidly, where, you know, I think media literacy is really important. But that used to just mean differentiating between disinformation and real news. Now it's like, how do you tell your kid that they can't believe any photograph or video they ever see? (laughs) It's kind of wild. Yeah. And then in the chat GPT era, which is, it's kind of funny. I was playing around with it last night. It has this thing it does where it just very confidently delivers the wrong answers uh, all the time. It, It told me last night that... Sea of Tranquility was published in 2010 and then republished in 2013 under the title Last Night in Montreal, which was my, uh, that was my first book. Yeah. came out in 2009. It's just like, it, it's, it's totally fabricated, but there's a lot of confidence in the delivery. And yeah, it does make the question of what's real much more slippery, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think also, and you've already touched on this, there's a way in which we already do that. We already did it 
with the pandemic by not accepting that it was real, even though we had mm-hmm. plenty of... Oh, that's another show we did in 2018. We did a show with Ed Young called Are We Ready for the Next Plague? You wrote, oh, sta- wow. you wrote Station Eleven in 2014, or at least it was published then. So, yeah. I mean, there was plenty of reasons to know this, just as we, we now know that the Bush administration had plenty of evidence that radical Islamists were, or that al-Qaeda in particular, was planning to fly pl- planes into buildings. You know, they Absolutely. Had, they had that yeah, the data was there. And then they didn't act on it. And I think it's mm-hmm. because we do kind of create a counter life that bumps up against the realities that we don't want to think about, even though it's in our best interest to know that a terrible disaster is coming. So you'd think that would be the place that we would really focus on. But we kind of don't want to do that, right? We just don't want to think about it. You know, we want to believe that life will just kind of continue in this sort of, you know, pleasant or at least tolerable or at least unsurprising way day by day by day without some kind of insane rupture in the timeline, like the 9-11 attacks or um, or the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, so you're right. We absolutely act counter to our best interests all the time on the societal level. Um, the Trump administration disbanded the office that was responsible for planning uh, pandemic responses. You know, it's just like... Yeah. Yeah, because I guess on some level, enough people believed that it was just never going to happen. And I think that that may also contribute to the sense, I don't know what your experience has been, but for example, during Mm 9-11, the first one or two days of that, I really did feel it felt very reality felt very scripted. I thought this feels more like a movie I'm watching than it feels like life. And I think the pandemic for a while had that quality too, that this felt scripted like a movie I've seen, like an Emily St. John Mandel book I've read. Uh Maybe one of the reasons that reality feels simulated (laughs) is because we just haven't really made any room for it in our minds when, when it's so disastrous. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think also just because of the way we consume stories and entertainment, you know, in such a voracious way, and I'm not implying that there's anything really negative about this, but we're used to thinking of widespread calamity as being something that happens in the movies, mm-hmm. or, you know, it happens on screen and TV too. So yeah, I, I remember that incredulity at the beginning of the pandemic, of just like, wait, a pandemic? Seriously? But this feels fictional. This can't actually be happening. And, you know, of course, the tragedy of it was that some people were not able to adapt to the reality that it was happening and, you know, found themselves unable to accept the science around masking and vaccines. But, yeah, there, there is that feeling of unreality. I know what you mean. Just this feeling of like, wait, but my timeline isn't this. This doesn't quite feel real. Right. And actually, to kind of complete that loop, there's a tremendous podcast called 912. It was created by a guy named Dan Taberski. One thing he unearths and shows in just fascinating detail is that at a certain point in the aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration, at least part of their intelligence apparatus, realized that they weren't good at this. They really weren't good at anticipating what was going to happen next. And they brought mm-hmm. in people kind of like you. I mean, it was a little bit more from the world of show business, from you know producers and writers from shows like 24, but the, the director Spike Jones was brought in, like a whole mm-hmm. bunch of people who do what you do, which is dream right. out different kinds of realities. And they said, help us anticipate what we don't anticipate right now. And I feel like for people, do you feel like you kind of see around corners a little bit, that you kind of feel like maybe you do just by the dreaming of fictions begin to sense some possibilities that aren't so obvious? Um, I don't know. You know, I'm always a little uncomfortable with the suggestion of being a prophet in any way. But I love that anecdote. I hadn't known about that. And, you know, it kind of it points to something really interesting, which is that, of course, the perpetrators of, you know, these kinds of acts, like the 9-11 attacks, 
of course they're watching the movies too. <laughs> so it's like, I do see the value in bringing in somebody whose job is to plot the narrative arc around what happens next in a scenario like that. I remember a fascinating story years and years ago. Okay, this is, uh, this is way back, but there was a plot line in The Sopranos where, I can't remember the characters, it's been a really long time, but a hit was orchestrated from a retirement home. Mm-hmm. And then there was this fascinating story a few years later where real mobsters had been arrested for trying to orchestrate a hit from a retirement home. So I kind of loved that echo where, you know, everybody is watching these narratives and picking up ideas. Oh, yeah. I mean, the guys in The Sopranos talk all the time about Scorsese. And, Absolutely. And yeah. You know, and because they, yeah. they, they watch the movies. Uh, yeah, that's their culture. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're talking to the author, Emily St. John Mandel, the novelist whose books include Sea of Tranquility, Glass Hotel, and Station Eleven. We'll be back right after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Well, it's a great life if you don't weaken, but who wants to be strong? That's another joke. Um, <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing, too, because um, the, so this is a, a quote from the Sea of Tranquility. Uh, one of the two protagonists in there, Olive, um, uh, her husband, I think, has this has the quote. It's a great life if you don't weekend up in his office mm-hmm. or something. And I noticed that in the appendices, you attribute it the way people usually do to a certain writer. Although I did a little more tracking down, and there's this weird Emily St. John Mandel thing that kind of precedes it. I think it's a, a 1905 or 1908 or something. They find a guy who who's living in a hobo encampment who is actually very, very wealthy. And he talks when he's talking to the authorities and to the newspaper writers. He says, you, you can contact my banker if you don't believe me and all this kind of stuff. And it turns <laughs> out he is this very wealthy guy and he just likes it there in these hobo encampments, which he called, refers to the jungle. And he says, the jungle is a grand life if you don't weaken. And I thought, whoa, <laughs> that's a so that's really interesting. Yeah. It just, first of all, is, you know, another alternative version of something. But once again, I just felt like, oh, wow, I can just sort of see that you know, coming up in another novel. So I want to talk a little bit about adaptations, too, because uh, we've been through the celebrated HBO adaptation of Station Eleven. Now, is it sort of firm that The Glass Hotel is also going to be similarly adapted? Uh, Not at all, because Hollywood is chaos. It's a strange moment in Hollywood of mergers Mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of movement kind of at the 
at the upper levels of corporations. Yeah, and streamer is changing hands. So yeah, so the status on the Glass Hotel is that uh, I had the incredible good fortune of, um, of doing a mini room, it's called, where you have about 10 weeks to write two scripts and figure out what the project is going to be. And that was about a year ago. And that was with the Station Eleven team. So Patrick Somerville, the showrunner, and, and other writers who worked on Station Eleven on the adaptation. So we produced these two scripts and we pitched it to HBO Max and they had a lot of movement, you know, in terms of mergers and acquisitions. And that's made it hard for them to make decisions as kind of as, as far as I can tell. So, you know, we're still waiting to hear back. So I hope it's a go, but nothing's certain. You know, when I read Station Eleven, my experience, I'm sure it's a very common experience, but it was really one of those times where it was almost like I was wearing a suit made of iron filings and the chair was a magnet. I like just couldn't get out of the chair for, for as long as it took me to read the book. I slept and I ate and I moved my bowels, you know, mm-hmm. and that was probably about it. I did the rest of the time. I was just your prisoner. And and so <laughs> although I liked the HBO adaptation, I thought the people who are really raving about this adaptation are the people who haven't read the book because the book is just innately a more powerful experience, at least for me. Um, and, and well, that's interesting. And, and I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, that experience is really varied. You know, it's interesting. I've absolutely encountered people who saw the book as kind of a a draft on which the show improved. Um, Mm. So there are people with an absolutely opposite reaction to you. I feel like they stand alone. That's fairly different works. Yeah. You know, what, what I really appreciated about the adaptation is that although it diverges wildly from the plot of the novel, it does feel as if the people who adapted it were able to remain true to the spirit of the novel, if that doesn't sound too silly. So it feels like very much the same work, but the plot is completely different. And yeah, it was fascinating to me to see what they did with it. I totally get that people are going to have different reactions and the medium in which they experience stuff and the mood that they're in when they experience mm-hmm. anything. It's all, it's not something that's perfectly constructed for, you know, empirical analysis. I, I will say also that I was up on Cape Cod last week and I was listening to the audiobook of The Glass Hotel. By the way, my dog listened to, well, he was present for every single second of The Glass Hotel. I, he was, <laughs> Did he enjoy it? I, I, it's hard to tell, and he was sleeping at, at sometimes, but I feel mm-hmm, like he was mm-hmm. probably taking it in. But a couple of times, there's a, I suddenly realized that I was having this very different kind of experience because at one point I was driving, I just decided to visit a part of the Cape that I, I used to go to a long time ago, but it's turned into this enclave for the super wealthy. And just for people who don't know The Glass Hotel, it is about this sort of Madoff-y kind of experience where all of these people, some of them very well-to-do, some of them a little bit more precariously perched, they just lose everything because it's a Ponzi scheme. And I, I was driving around this place that is kind of a, now an enclave for the wealthy. And it was March, so none, none of the people were there. And I was kind of driving around all these posted signs saying, get out of here, this is private, and all this stuff. And I was listening at the same time to a journalist visiting that character in prison and asking him a lot of questions mm-hmm. about all the people who got ruined. And I realized that I'm going to associate those two things now. Every time I go back to that place, I'm going to think of your book. And every time I think of your book, I'm going to think of that place. What we're doing when we're consuming literature, I think, is affects how we perceive it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I don't listen to audiobooks very often, but a concept I came across a while ago, and I wish I could remember where I got this, the idea of music as a memory battery. Mm-hmm. 
So there are specific pieces of music where, you know, there's this one REM song where I listen to it and I'm transported back to walking along Danforth Avenue in Toronto in the snow at night when I was 19 with that on headphones and, you know, probably a Walkman in my pocket. It was that long ago. Yeah, I, I like that idea of places being associated with the art we consume. There are books like that for me. You know, I'll read them and I'll just have this or I'll think of them later. And I'll associate the book with a place. I kind of love that. It makes for kind of an interesting marker in your life. It does. I mean, I, it, it made something that was going to be poignant anyway, even more poignant somehow. It, it was like somebody was putting up a scrim behind your novel where I could kind of see how certain things might look under those circumstances. Right. So yeah. I want to I circle back to what you were just talking about with Station Eleven and particularly sort of focus on, you know, I think when people describe Station Eleven to people who haven't read it, they say there was a pandemic, it wiped out 99% of people, and then it's kind of pre-industrial. And they might be tempted just to skip over what most of the book is about, which is a mm -hmm. whole Absolutely. bunch of different things. But I think one of the things that the book is about is about culture, when so much is stripped away and so much is gone and swimming pools and outside outdoor lights that moths circle around and all those things that are on your incomplete list are gone. We still have culture and culture is in the form of this traveling Shakespeare and, and music troupe is shown there. Could you talk a little bit about how you were thinking about that uh, as you incorporated it into your story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this seems insane now, just given the way the book is described and marketed and explained to people. But the pandemic in the book was so incidental. Yeah. <laughs> and what I mean by that is my original idea with Station Eleven was I wanted to write about the lives of artists what it means to devote your life to your art and, you know, the costs of that and the joys of it. Um, I also wanted to write about our technology, the iPhones and airplanes and electricity and insulin and all these things that surround us that are really easy to take for granted because you don't have to think about them a lot of the time. And I thought, well, maybe it would be interesting to map those things onto each other and write about being an artist in a post-technological society. And what that meant was that I had to end the world somehow, which... I know it makes me sound like kind of a psychopath, but the, um, you know, a pandemic was just a horribly effective way of doing that. But then, you know, you were just, as you were just saying, when people talk about the book, that is usually the thing that comes up, you know, well, it's about a pandemic that kills almost everybody. And it's a totally reasonable response after what we've been through in the last three years is, oh God, that's the last thing I want to read. Uh, that's a heavy lift for all of us at this point. But yeah, it's not really about a pandemic. It's about the things we want to preserve, broadly speaking, and what what it means to to try to be a person, like, you know, to not just survive, but try to have a meaningful life, I think in any circumstances. But in this case, I use this post-technological world. Yeah, I think it tracks back to what we were saying before, which is these books are a lot about how people treat one another. And so yeah. how would we treat one another if this was a computer simulation. How would we treat one another if all the money that we were counting on was suddenly gone? How would mm -hmm. we treat one another after a pandemic or after something that stripped away the Industrial Revolution and, and put us back in a different place? But I think that part of culture, 
I don't know. I've been thinking a lot lately. <laughs> I'm going to make a political statement in here and say, I think it's no accident that led by people like Ron DeSantis, there's a new assault on what is taught, what books are read, what books are okay for school libraries, what books can be banned. A little while ago, the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro was reacting. He was watching The Last of Us in your old slot on HBO. Mm-hmm. And there was, the, I think, episode three has this uh, plot that's about two men who discover their love for one another in this dystopian post-apocalyptic landscape and have a domestic life. Uh, and he was really complaining about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. And yeah, I thought, that doesn't sound like his cup of tea at all. No, but it also, I think a lot of these people have decided, you know, this is a little bit where the rubber meets the road. We can talk about, you know, entitlements and, and stuff like that till our faces turn blue. But people understand their reality through culture. So we better have a better grip on what culture is and what's canonical. And, and to me, that actually tracks back to Station Eleven, too. It's whoever decides what culture is plays a big role in shaping our understanding of real life. Absolutely. Yeah. And isn't it interesting that politicians with somewhat fascist te- tendencies are so intensely threatened by the arts? Mm. And I, I don't know if it's because imagination is a threat to a fascist mindset. It might be that simple that, you know, for fascism to work, we have to believe perhaps in a more black and white world than the arts allow. You know, that doesn't allow for a lot of nuance and storytelling. But whatever it is, it's like they sense the fragility of their worldview and the mindset that they're trying to promote. And children's books somehow threaten that. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, well, I think the biggest threat to orthodoxy is heterodoxy. And creativity culture is implicitly heterodox. You're the perfect symbol of this constantly inventing new ways to experience life, experience reality. So if you're trying to sell an orthodoxy, which means kind of narrowing the field of vision, the last thing you want to hear is, oh, no, here's this completely alternative way of doing things, right? That would be scary. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because who would accept that narrow field of vision? You know, some people do. Some people are comforted by kind of a black and white world where of like absolute good, absolute evil, and we know what side we're on, and nothing ever threatens that mindset. But I think enough people will find that limiting, that the arts are really scary to the people who want that world. Yeah, and I think sort of the the obverse of that is that those of us who are politically more or less the opposite of that, we really trust the arts, too. I I think the arts earn our trust, too, but there's a sense that, yeah, if everybody sees Hamlet, you know, we're going to be better. Mm-hmm. We're going to be yeah. better as a result of that. I, I assume you believe that confidence is warranted. I do. I do believe that confidence is warranted. A kind of funny thing about writing novels is that they function as time capsules. So mm-hmm. the more time passes and the more you change as a person, the further away you get from your novel, in my experience. So, you know, at this point in my life, if I were writing Station Eleven, I don't think it would be a strictly Shakespearean theater company. But yeah, at, at the time I wrote it, Shakespeare was absolutely front of mind. And and yeah, I, I do believe in the value of Hamlet and in uh, gay love stories and The Last of Us and all the rest of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's also, I mean, there, there actually now are clinical studies, uh, random controlled studies, I guess, that show that people who imbibe a lot of fiction develop more empathy. 
to the extent that such a thing could be scientifically proven, mm -hmm. there, there's evidence of that, right? We become more empathetic because we see into how, I mean, really, you invite us to be empathetic sometimes to very unsympathetic characters. You know, it's impossible to completely hate Jonathan Alcatus the way that you've right. drawn him. It's and, and his original wife is so fascinating. I mean, you know, someone who's completely complicit with all of this evil that he's doing. They know exactly what's going to happen to people and they don't... Mm -hmm doesn't seem to bother them. But I couldn't hate them. I, I couldn't hate that person. Somehow or other, you you put enough humanity into him, which is an old Shakespearean trick, right? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it feels like a win if I can do that. Uh, it's partly to keep myself interested as a writer, because the project of writing a novel is usually quite long. The Sea of Tranquility was kind of anomalous in the sense that it only took about 18 months. The Glass Hotel was five years of work. Wow. And I have to find the characters interesting or it's kind of unbearable. And they're only interesting to me if there is some moral ambiguity there. So I do really appreciate you saying that. You know, I, I always like to complicate who these characters are. I think characters who are purely good or purely evil are just not that realistic. So a big part of the project of The Glass Hotel was thinking through, okay, who are these people? What are these moral gradients? An idea that interested me is that Probably most of us are not quite as good as we'd like to imagine, mm -hmm. by which I mean, probably there's a number in most cases. You know, I, I think that if presented with enough money, probably a larger percentage of us that we'd like to admit would say, okay, well, maybe I will fudge these numbers on this investment return statement. Yeah, so that, it was an interesting and kind of unsettling idea for me to play with. Yeah, I, I think what we don't understand, I think you're absolutely right, by the way. I think most of us, you know, it's, it's what is that called, the, the Dunning-something hypothesis. We are, we're overconfidence is kind of priced into who we are, but particularly probably overconfidence about our moral worth. I mean, almost mm -hmm. nobody wakes up and says, I think today I'll be a villain. You know, I think uh, today I'll be one of the bad people. I don't think anybody yeah. says that. They all have some kind of rationale for what they're doing. And I think you're also mm -hmm. right that there's a number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's sad, but true. <laughs> no, I think also um, compartmentalization is so real that I think there are people who are capable of doing absolutely horrendous things for a large part of their day. And then putting that in a box and going home and sitting across from their spouse at dinner and not feeling like a bad person. Right. And I think there are others of us who might imagine that we could do that and we can't, right? I'm about to blow a quote, I think. Is it Milton who says there's neither heaven nor hell, but thinking makes it so? Uh, yes, exactly. That we think, well, if I had $5 million, maybe to get that, I would do some things that I wouldn't regret them that much because I'd get $5 million. But the truth is, we drag all that stuff around with us, right? It doesn't make any difference that we've got $5 million. We're still in a hell, the hell of our thoughts about what we did. Absolutely. It's just human nature. I think you'd get the $5 million and then you'd be like, but with $10 million. <laughs> all right. So uh, um, we're going to take a little break. We'll have our last few moments with Emily St. John Mandel right after this. And you say, look at this, the world still spins and beauty will never go. Time to say some thank yous. One is to Kat Pastor, the technical producer of this show, and a special one to our senior producer, Lily Tyson, who prepared for this 
at least as vigorously, if not more immersively, than I did. And there's a whole counter-life multiverse iteration of this where Lily Tyson asks all of her questions, uh, Emily St. John Mandel, and I would very much like to hear that show as well. So we do have to, I think, talk a little bit about Olive in Sea of Tranquility. Olive's a novelist. She's written six novels. The fourth novel was her breakout novel. It involved a pandemic. Um, (laughs) You know, and and on and on. And she's she's touring being asked questions about that fourth novel because of a, a lot of things that's being adapted for the screen. But meanwhile, a pandemic is coming. I actually find your work funny at times. I, I don't think funny is maybe the first word people associate, but I think there's a lot of humor in what you do. And at one point, Olive says something like, I've never been much for autofiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, that's that was an, a joke. I'm glad you a, picked up on it. Yeah, that's a joke, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but talk a little bit about that, because that's kind of hanging yourself out there. I mean, Olive is so recognizably you in so mm-hmm. many details, and a daughter, and this and that. So I, I don't know. I mean, there are some authors who really hate the idea of autofiction. John Irving got really mad at me on stage one time when I was kind of comparing certain aspects of his life to his fiction. And he got furious because his suggestion was, well, that means I didn't invent anything. So talk a little bit about how you see this. Yeah, absolutely. I think novelists inevitably put real people into our characters. And yeah, Olive's an interesting one. She began as an experiment in autofiction, which I didn't even know if I'd publish. I just kind of wanted to write about some of the stranger experiences I'd had on tour, which is kind of delicate because... 99% of the interactions I have on tour are great. I love traveling to these places and meeting people. And, you know, you have really interesting conversations. You get to visit bookstores. Like, it's pretty wonderful. So that's 99% of interactions. I'm just going to say, if you do tons and tons of events, that 1% does add up. (laughs) So I found it accumulated some very strange interactions on tour. And it can be such a weird life. It was just kind of an interesting thing to write about. So... Before the pandemic broke out, the, uh, that was actually the first part of the book I started writing. I was writing in his little autofiction fragments just to kind of experiment with the form. Then the pandemic happened. I decided to write this time travel novel. I thought, well, maybe it'd be interesting to take that autofiction and run it through a sci-fi lens. So Olive is on tour in the year, I want to say 2302 and something like that. She lives on the moon. She's on tour on Earth. And writing those sections was also a way of writing about the strangeness of being the author of Station Eleven in the first few months of the pandemic, where I was kind of inundated by invitations to write essays and op-eds about that experience. And I I turned them all down because it felt a little gross, like I was using this real-life tragedy as a marketing opportunity. But it was a weird position to be in and kind of a strange situation. And I did kind of want to write about it. So I gave that experience to Olive on this epic book tour and the service of a pandemic novel while a real pandemic has is starting to pick up steam. Yeah, they were interesting sections to write because on the one hand, you're right, a lot of it is extremely autobiographical. Her home life is completely different from mine, but she does have a daughter who's the same age as my daughter who says some of the same things that my daughter used to say back then. She plays a game with her daughter called Enchanted Forest, which is a game I play with with my little girl. The interactions she has on the road are completely autobiographical. So people really did say those things to me. It's just, you know, they said it in Texas as opposed to on the moon, (laughs) whatever it is in the book. So what I found is that, you know, she's such a combination of fact and fiction But even though that began as a kind of autobiographical character, I didn't really ultimately feel 
more exposed than I did with, say, Miranda in Station Eleven, who I also have a lot in common with in terms of her approach to her art and her experience of where she's from and moving to a big city, creating art around the margins of a day job. Or Vincent in The Glass Hotel, where there was also some overlap between who I was at the time I wrote that book and, and who she is as a character. So yeah, all of this uh, is autobiographical and also not, but the book tour sections all happened. I will say that, you know, 90% of the questions that Olive has asked on the book tour are stupid questions or highly repetitious <laughs> questions. <laughs> you know, I mean, what's it like to be a pandemic writer as a pandemic's approaching or something? And she says something like, yeah, I think that might have been asked before once or twice or something. <laughs> right. right. I, I feel like everybody who's in my position since that novel is thinking, oh, I don't want to be that person. <laughs> I know, I know. I didn't mean to scare all the interviewers, but I totally did. Yeah. No, you to I, I assume I'm not the only person reporting back to you on this. <laughs> no, it comes up every single event and interview. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my stock response is like, if you're not asking me crazy questions and you have nothing to worry about. So there you go. So does your daughter know yet that you took the game, the Foxy uh, Enchanted Forest game and put it in a book? Does she know that? And is she old enough to maybe even appreciate what that means? Because some kids will at least go through a period of life. Like when she's 16, she may go, I can't believe you did that. I can't you believe you took our lives mm -hmm. and made it into a book. How are you thinking about all that? Well, what I'll tell her is I am extremely careful about intellectual property. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, yeah, so the game is called Enchanted Forest, but I named the game. So it was fair game. <laughs> I changed the characters that she named. So her imaginary friend in the book is Magic Foxy. In real life, that's Foxy Jamesiana. So, you know, totally different. And in real life, her imaginary friend who's an owl is Magic Who. Yeah, I'll tell her, look, I uh, I protected your IP. I didn't use anything that wasn't mine. Yeah. I, I, I just want to say, having raised a son who's now 33 and gone through his adolescence, all of that lawyerly hair splitting that you just did is mm -hmm. not going to work. Okay, thanks for the heads <laughs> yeah. up. I appreciate it. Be, be prepared to lose on that front anyway. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But it is, I think it is, it was a risk that you took, and you've already kind of commented on it, but I want to give you one more chance to say something about it. I mean, there's a way in which, well, I mean, just go back to Shakespeare. We really don't know very much about Shakespeare at all. And an option is to be Thomas Pynchon, uh, you know, and, and have people not know anything about you, including whether you're in the room right now or not. You know, you did make a big move in Sea of Tranquility, putting so much of yourself kind of out there. Was that scary at all? Was it, did you feel like, oh, you know, I can't be Thomas Pynchon anymore? Yeah, it was scary. But, um, I mean, you've raised kind of an interesting point here, which is that being Thomas Pynchon is kind of an incredible privilege. <laughs> like, I only know of two authors in the world who can do that and be successful, and that's him and whoever Elena Ferrante actually mm -hmm. is. You know, for most of us, you start out, nobody knows you, and you've got to hustle for readers. And that was my experience with, you know, my first three novels, definitely. So I guess at some point around Station Eleven, I could have come off the road and stopped, you know, I guess stopped giving interviews or stopped meeting with readers, but I wouldn't want to do that. Like that's, meeting readers is kind of amazing. I realize I'm rambling a little bit, but like, is it fun to be Thomas Pinchon? You know, maybe if you're really shy, but I've had a lot of great experiences that are kind of adjacent to being a writer, you know, in terms of going to festivals and meeting interesting people and getting to travel. 
cab drivers, think, cab drivers singing jazz songs to you. Yeah, uh, I mean that. Yeah, I wish that it actually happened. That was oh, fictional. But, I thought that was real. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I don't know if I'd want that life of isolation at this point. Well, I mean, and this is, we're coming to the end of this interview, and I want to say that in the past 10 years, I've never asked anybody, any guest on this show, about their divorce. And the only reason I'm asking you about this is that you had to do this very weird thing with Dan Coyce from Slate. Dan is one of our favorite people. But your Wikipedia entry, talk about, you know, simulation hypothesis. Talk about somebody else determining what reality is. Your Wikipedia entry refused to say that you had gotten divorced until you, well, you should explain what you had to do. Yeah, my Wikipedia entry said I was still married, which was, I don't know, like the, the inaccuracy of that bothered me. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll get this, I'll get this fixed. Like, surely I can just make this happen. So I contacted somebody at Wikipedia. They have this email address for, um, I guess, inaccuracies. And I cited the divorce judgment, like with the file number, so it could be looked up. And I said, like, could you just please adjust this section on the page? And somebody got back to me and said that they couldn't do that because they don't use court records as primary sources. I got in touch with a senior editor at Wikipedia who said that I needed a citation. And this turned out not to be correct, but the messaging I got was that I needed to say I was divorced in an interview in order for the change to be made on the biographical section of my Wikipedia page. So I was like, okay, you know, I, I don't know how to just like make an interview happen in the week before Christmas. So I contacted my publicist at Knopf, who's wonderful. And like, if anybody can make an interview happen, it's her. She kind of said, yeah, I can't like make an interview happen the week before Christmas. So I thought, well, I am followed by a lot of journalists on Twitter. Maybe I could just take care of this problem. So I laid it out in a series of tweets. It's like, friends, did you know that if uh, you have a Wikipedia page and you get a divorce. The only way to get that updated is to give an interview where you say you're divorced. And in fact, I found out later that tweet would have been sufficient, but I'd gotten bad information. Within about a half hour, this email came into my inbox from Dan Coyce that said, I would totally interview you for Slate. I was like, okay, great. So he sent me these hilarious interview questions. I answered them and then went off to play with my daughter for a couple hours. And then by the time I came back and looked at Twitter again, the page had been updated <laughs> and the interview had been published. It, it's pretty funny. The title is A Totally Normal Interview with author Emily St. John Mandel. And one of the questions is, so are you still married? <laughs> so yeah, that provided the source to get the Wikipedia page fixed. Yeah, I assume you get how you this is, I mean, in terms of your fiction, this idea mm -hmm. that in this digital counterlife, your flesh and blood reality has not been corrected and can't be corrected except on the terms of this kind of digital almost simulation of reality that in order to fix this, you had to leave your world and go play by their rules. Yeah, because I'm apparently not an expert in my own life. I needed to get a citation. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was kind of insane, honestly. Right. Yeah. And look, I get it. Wikipedia runs on citations, but it did feel really kind of odd and dystopian. But that was what it took. Who, um, it's like, who are you going to yeah. believe? The person standing in the kitchen with you or Wikipedia? Wikipedia, it's obviously. Like, knows yeah, it, especially right? it's like, look, I've got like a court record number. Like you can look this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny. I was grateful that I was in a position that I could just do that. You know, that I was just followed by enough journalists that I could make an interview happen so easily. So we've run out of time, not out of questions, I can guarantee you. But just tell me and Lily Tyson, how long are we going to have to wait for novel number seven? Uh, a number of years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm distracted by television. And 
I'm only about halfway through the first draft of my next novel. So I'm working on it, but it'll be a while. Are you distracted by watching television or writing or trying to create television? Trying to create television. I really love TV writing. It's something I've gotten into lately. It's fun to learn how to do something completely different. Absolutely. Well, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for sharing your time. And thanks for these wonderful books. They really meant a lot to me and to Lily. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. All right. We've been talking to Emily St. John Mandel. Thanks for listening. If you truly wish to-